Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. was by Igor Stravinsky, one of the great masters of the 20th century. And we'll, we'll say a bit more about him and perhaps why we listened to a selection from his mass um, in a few minutes. Um, tonight's presentation is going to have three basic parts. I'm going to say a few things about the nature of beauty, um, and then we'll turn our attention to sacred music, and then finally, um, a shorter section, practical steps that we can take toward the restoration of beauty in our own lives generally, but also beauty within the sacred liturgy. 
So beauty, what is it? According to St. Thomas Aquinas, beauty is that which being seen pleases. Ut quod videter placet. If you look at this definition for a while, you begin to see that it has two basic dimensions. It has an objective dimension and a subjective dimension. Peter Kraft has a, a great um, podcast out on the internet um, about uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. I'd recommend, if you haven't thought much about these matters, that you give that podcast a listen. He bases his talk on works of C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's a really fine talk. And I, I, There's so much discourse in, in, the, in the general Catholic world today about true, the true, good, and beautiful. I'm not going to spend a lot of time analyzing those things as transcendentals. Um, but I would encourage you to, to seek out his podcast. Um, Peter Crave articulates it nicely, I think, that being is the, is the root um, and the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, being that is known as truth, uh, being that is correctly desired as goodness, and being that is properly admired as beauty. Um, if you go back and look at the medieval scholastics, not everybody agreed that beauty was, in fact, a transcendental. Um, in some sense, beauty's status as a transcendental came out of the neo-scholastic movement of the 20th century. Um, and uh, no one ever really doubted whether truth and goodness, whether they were transcendentals. But beauty's status, that's, that's not so clear. Um, there are some dangers, however, about mixing these three together. Um, and I think what I'm going to offer in the next minute or so is a kind of corrective to a lot of the things you might read in the popular Catholic press about the relation between goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, and this is based on the work of Etienne Gilson. Um, I should have put him on your handout, uh, G-I-L-S-O-N. Um, he wrote a, a very important book called The Arts of the Beautiful, and he spends a fair amount of time disentangling these th- transcendentals. Um, there's a danger in confusing beauty with truth. And who are the culprits in this? Well the usual suspects. They're philosophers. <laughs> um, um, and those who have to write about beauty um, and, the, and art for a living. Um, and I've had to do that myself, and I've fallen into these traps. The trap is, is that you begin to think about music as if it was a communication of information or beauty or art, as, it, as though it were a communication of information. And so you analyze it in that way. If you have to write a book on Impressionism, you're going to have to come up with something to say. And to go into how they painted these paintings is not going to get you very far. So you have to come up with all kinds of things to say. And the same thing is true with music. Um, so philosophers, when they talk about music, are going to come up with a certain approach. And um, I would just recommend a little bit of caution. Okay? Um, they may have some good things to say, but um, really, if you want to know how something is made, ask the composer or ask the artist. Um, they'll, they'll be able to give you the inside scoop. Confusing beauty with goodness. Um, there's a danger here. Um, the danger is that uh, ethics, or good, the, uh, thinking about, about goodness, is based on natural law. There are natural laws against certain things, and natural laws that incline us to do certain things. Ethics and aesthetics are not the same thing. There are not natural laws for art. There are objective criteria for beauty, but there aren't natural laws. And um, there's a danger in, in mixing the two up. Um, art imitates nature, um, that's true, but it does it by taking material and forming it towards something for a given end, um, in the way that nature does. And so those two things need to be um, uh, disentangled. So if you're interested in those questions, and the questions about the transcendentals and how they relate, I would recommend Peter Crave's podcast, um, and also Etienne Gilson's book on um, the arts of the beautiful. All right, so on the one hand, we have the objective side of beauty. What is, that, wh- how do, what is that about? Well, there are three basic qualities that St. Thomas mentions. Um, one is unity. Um, one is harmony or consonance. Um, and one is, the Latin is claritas, and that's a tough word to translate. It's not really clarity. Some people translate it as a gleam or a spark, um, something that catches your eye that makes you look twice. 
Um, and these are three objective criteria that we can use to help us understand, I think, why we find something's beautiful. They're not so, so good at, at being a, um, uh, a, a cookbook, if you will, or a recipe for making art, but they help us understand why we, why we enjoy certain forms of art. Unity simply means that we perceive something as a distinct entity. It doesn't just blend in with the background. Right? Um, consonance, which is a musical term, interestingly enough, um, or harmony, is the relation between the parts, um, the parts to each other, and also the parts to a whole. And those things are going to shift. What is considered consonant, what's going to be considered harmonious, is going to shift across time and from culture to culture. But there will always be desire to find the harmony and the, and the consonance that's consistent with that particular time. And then claritas, that's tough. Again, some people, I think, I think I like the word color. It's that thing, that, that, that spark or gleam that makes you go, what's that? Um, that makes you want to look at something a second time or hear something a second time. Um, so those, those, are the, those are the foundational um, objective uh, criteria or bases, if you will, for, for beauty. But there's another piece. If we go back to the definition, there's, there's, um, it's that which is seen. Well, being seen requires a seer as well as something that's, um, that is seen. So how does the subjective component come in? Well, um, there are some, some basic ways to think about this. One is in terms of freshness versus authenticity. Um, at some point, when you propose to your spouse, those of you who are married, um, um, your, your, the husband had at some point had to come up with an authentic, meaningful way to express your love. Right? You couldn't just say something from a love song or here's a Hallmark card. You had to come up with something that was that was believable. You know, um, and. Um, and you had to find your own words and, and, and say it in a way that, that had authenticity. Um, well, musicians struggle with this all the time, and artists struggle with this all the time. How do you find a language that allows you to speak in a way that's not cliched? Uh, roses are red, violets are blue, and so on and so on. That wasn't a cliche probably the first time it was said, okay? But you try to pass that off while you're holding out a ring saying, will you marry me? You're not going to get very far, okay? Um, Artists in particular, because um, they're very attuned and sensitive to these things, are always looking for ways to, to say things that are fresh. Um, and so if you, if you have a, a sophisticated understanding of musical language or artistic language, and you see something that's cliched, your, your first response is going to be, that's okay, I don't want to see that, or I don't want to hear that, because you've seen it a hundred times already. Right? So the, the, uh, freshness and, um, uh, versus cliché, that's one way to think about the subjective dimension. This, the second is tied closely to this as well, predictability versus unpredictability. What's that balance? If it's completely unpredictable, then you're going to be lost. You're not going to know which way you're going. Um, but if it's so predictable that it's formulaic, why bother listening? Why bother looking? All right. My eldest daughter um, is 12 now. Um, a few years ago, she was reading all of the Bobsy Twins books, the, uh, um, uh, the kids that live in the boxcar, boxcar children books. These books are all basically the same, story over and over and over again. She didn't get tired of it, okay? But my guess is when she's an adult, she's not going to go back and read those same kinds of books. She's going to want something that's, that's less predictable, okay? And the same thing with, is true with art and with music. Um, and then propriety. Uh, there's propriety of place, propriety of activity, and then also precedence. Um, propriety of place. We wouldn't want to have a funeral dirge sung at a birthday party, okay? There's a place for, a fun for funeral dirges, but they're not at birthday parties. Um, or a Broadway tune at Mass. Well, I'm not going to say much about that. Um, uh, then there's um, the matter of precedence. Um, associations of certain musical instruments uh, with other religions, for example. The Church Fathers um, did not want musical instruments to be used in the liturgy. And it took almost a thousand years before the organ was able to find its way back in. Okay? Um, I don't know what they would say about most of our, <laughs> our liturgies today. But wind instruments, for example, were associated with, um, with Dionysus. Stringed instruments with Apollo. 
Okay? So when we walk into our mass, um, if, if, if you have to go to the late mass on Sunday night, and, and, the, and they're playing guitars, your first thought is not, oh, oh my goodness, they're worshiping Apollo. Okay? But those, that, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of association that might have been, been there a thousand years ago. These things change over time. Um, uh, there's a, there are songs, those of you who use Christian prayer for the Liturgy of the Hours, um, there's some Irish melodies in the back. Um, we, as Americans, most of us associate those um, tunes with th- those words. You know, they're, they're hymns we sing. Um, but if you're Irish, you probably know other words to those, those songs. All right? And um, so there's a kind of precedence there where if you're trying to use that song to worship, but you've got another set of words in your head, it's gonna, it's gonna, there's going to be a problem. You know? And the person next to you might not have those associations, and they might go, what, why, why can't you use this to worship? What's the problem? And um, they don't understand that you have, there's a level of precedence there um, that you've experienced. So again, these are the subjective dimensions. Um, another good example, the swastika. Uh, I'm told that the swastika was once a symbol of peace. Right? I dare you to try to start using it in public and calling it a symbol of peace. You're not going to be able to do it. There's, just, there's too much cultural history associated with that symbol. Um, and that happens with music and happens with other forms of art. So these things interpose themselves. They mediate our experience of beauty and art. Um, and then there's personal preparation. Um, how many of you like a good, strong cup of coffee? Anybody right here? Strong cup of coffee, yeah. Um, how many of you really loved coffee the first time you had it? Okay. okay. <laughs> One gentleman. Um, I know, I didn't like it um, the first time I had it. Um, but there was a certain sense that, hey, a lot of people are drinking coffee. And your parents probably were drinking coffee, and there must be something here. So I'm going to get past my initial response. I'm going to press on because I believe there's something here that's worth investigating further. Um, those of you who enjoy single malt scotch and cigars, um, probably a similar kind of experience. Um, you name it: uh, Thai food, Indian food, um, art films. I, I don't. You can you can fill in the blank. There are a lot of pleasures that we experience as adults that we had to work our way to be able to really enjoy. Um, and um, not everybody's going to have those same areas that we work in. But that's, it's the same thing with beauty and with art. There are, there are lots of, of uh, types of art and music that initially may, may be put off by. But we have to sort of have the humility, I guess, to try to figure out what's going on and investigate it and, um, before we write it off. Okay? So those are some of the subjective things. So on the one hand, there are objective criteria for beauty. Um, there's uh, unity, there's harmony, and there's uh, the spark or gleam. And on the other hand, there are subjective elements that enter into our experience of beauty. All right. Um, I want to say one thing before I move on to, to sacred music. Um, this question of the relation between the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, is it possible that those things, three things will interact at times and that um, beauty will lead us to the truth uh, or beauty will lead us to goodness? Um, I don't want to discount that because it, that's the second anecdote I have for you. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was on a journey, a spiritual journey. I had grown up Pentecostal. I had become evangelical um, as a young adult in, in college. Um, and then I was introduced um, to the Book of Common Prayer in graduate school, and I discovered liturgical worship. And I would go to a weekly ecumenical service where they used the Book of Common Prayer. And I fell in love with it. I bought my own copy. I'd carry it around with me. I just I loved the prayers. It was just so beautiful. Um, and I realized that I, though I'd been praying almost all my life, I had not, there, was, there was a whole level of prayer that I had never been introduced to. Um, well, in graduate school, I started really to self-identify as an Anglican and as an Episcopalian. And I um, started reading more about the origins of Anglicanism and the origins of the liturgy. And I began to see the parallels, the deep parallels between the Anglican liturgy and the Catholic liturgy. And I began to seek those, those origins out in the history um, of Anglicanism. About a, an hour south of where I was in school in Philadelphia, um, we, there was St. Clement's, a, um, the high Anglo-Catholic 
um, church um, in America. It's, um, they have a high altar. The priest celebrates facing east. They have relics in the altar. Um, they sing Gregorian chant. Well, my wife and I went down there for the Corpus Christi liturgy. It was on a Thursday, not on Sunday. It wasn't transferred. Um, it was Thursday night, and um, they sang Gregorian chant. Um, the priest preached on the real presence. And um, it was a gorgeous liturgy. Um, I now know that those, the orders, Anglican orders, are, have been declared null and void. And they've, of course, done certain things to try to get around that. Um, but then at the end of the liturgy, um, they had a, a procession with a monstrance and a canopy. And they were putting flower petals out. And everyone was chanting. And um, I had been studying about the Eucharist up to that point. But something happened in that moment of that, when all that beauty came together with that teaching. And I, I came to believe in the real presence. And um, it wasn't even a Catholic church. Um, but the power of beauty was there. Um, and I didn't know at the time what happens if you start believing in the real presence. Because you have to have a priest to have the real presence. And you have to have bishops to have priests. And you have to have a church to have bishops. And before you know it, you've got all seven sacraments. And it's all over. Um, and, uh, you know. Um, now, I, I believe that grace was there that night. And that's what, that's, what, that's what led me to that point. I think I could have brought a lot of people in off the street. And they could have sat right next to me. Heard exactly what I heard and, and, saw, and had seen what I saw. And they would not have had the same experience. So this, this uh, facile association of beauty with truth and goodness, it's, it's dangerous. But if grace is present and you've been set up, like I was, um, it, can, it, can, it, can, um, it can lead you lead you in places you wouldn't expect. I do believe that beautiful liturgies can help us overcome the, ob- the um, obstacles or problems people might have with other church teachings. You can sort of be led in further and further than you realize or know where you're going. So anyway, I hope that's helpful. Um, before we go on to Catholic sacred music per se, um, I thought we could listen to a little bit more. This is also by a 20th century composer by the name of Arvo Pert. He's an Estonian composer of sacred music. Um, and you have the handout. This is um, on your handout, the text for the, the Credo. Um, and this is from his uh, Berlin Mass. And it was written, um, I think, in the, ni- in the 80s or the 90s. So let's, let's go. Thank you. 
right. Let's turn our attention now to Catholic sacred music. What is sacred music? There is no definition that's fully satisfying, um, but I'll offer one, and it's on your handout. Sacred music is music set to a sacred text intended for liturgical use that properly brings glory to God and moves the faithful to prayer through a style that is rooted within the traditions of the church and that avoids inappropriate stylistic connotations. And we'll unpack this as we go. Um, And if we don't sufficiently unpack it, we can take it up during the question period. Um, It's useful to distinguish sacred music from other kinds of religious music. Sacred music is a tradition that we enter into and that enters into us. If you're a composer um, or a church musician, there's this simultaneous receiving the music in and then placing yourself within the tradition. Um, The tradition of sacred music is something a composer receives, not unlike the liturgy. Um, It's something that we receive with great humility. It follows very specific norms. Preeminently, it's it's conformity um, to the animating forms of Gregorian chant. This is different from slavish imitation. It involves immersing oneself in the repertoire and internalizing the animating principles, and then composing from within those principles. There is no paint-by-numbers approach to composing sacred music. In short, if you want to learn to compose sacred music, you have to learn chant. Now, why did I put? Why do we listen to Stravinsky and Arvo Pear, these two 20th-century composers? Why not stick with the safe um, Renaissance motet by Palestrina um, or some Baroque music? Um, I I did this because I I think it fits to this point. These were two men who um, simultaneously immersed themselves in their traditions, but yet spoke with an accent that was recognizably contemporary to their times. And um, it was because of their immersion, their apprenticeship, if you will, to to the tradition, that that's what allowed them to do this. Um, And I think that they represent, uh, there are many others that could be cited, but they represent people who, who reached the pinnacle of their art um, but they did it with their feet in tradition. And I, Stravinsky is a good example. He began off began as a bad boy in um, the early 20th century, doing a lot of crazy things in Paris um, with riots breaking out. Um, but as he got older, he became more of a classicist, and he reconnected with his past and um, wrote a lot of very beautiful music. Some of his music is rather challenging, and it, it's sort of like that first cup of coffee. It takes some getting used to. Um, other pieces like this, I think, are quite accessible. Um, so um, so th- if this is sacred music, um, on the one hand, something you enter into. What about religious music um, that's not necessarily sacred? Um, the most common form of this would be um, vernacular music, popular music, if you will, with religious themes. Um, now, this music is often viewed with suspicion by um, a certain subset of Catholics, um, and, and I think for good reason. Um, but I have a couple of things to, to, uh, observations to, to make about this. Um, one of the reasons that I think it's viewed as suspicion is that um, either we're all closet Platonists and we've read the Republic and we take this all very seriously, um, but that's probably not the case. Um, other reasons might be um, that this music has been imported into the liturgy um, when it should not have been. Um, we've had to suffer for many years under liturgies with really, really bad music. And, um, and so, so we're, now we're opposed to it in principle at all times and all places. Okay? Um, and so in a sense, we're reacting to that. Um, then there are the insipid and banal texts. Okay, um, I don't really know what to say much. If there's more to say about that. Um, and then there are associations with cultural, popular youth culture and cultural excess. Okay, that's another reason we often are put off by this. 
And then some people react um, out of a misguided sense of, about musical universals. Um, music with a beat is bad. I grew up believing that as a Pentecostal youth. I heard lots of stories about missionaries and you know all kinds of things. Um, the fact is, unless you're singing chant, your music has a beat. The question is, is it how, how strongly is it emphasized? Okay, so that's the um, that's one thing. And then also, there's also a misunderstanding about the way the church has used popular music through history. Um, I'll give you just one example: the 16th century Counter Reformation. Um, the third opera that was ever written was written um, in a popular idiom and in a style that was sort of sweeping Italy at the time, um, and it was it was put up by the oratorians. Um, the composer's name was Emilio de Calvieri, um, and his opera was called The Representation of Soul and Body. And uh, Now, this was not done in the liturgy. This was done in a, as, in a paraliturgical context, but it was used, they, they took popular music of the time, and they used it to reach out to the broader culture to carry out the work of the Counter-Reformation. Okay? So there's an historical precedent of outside of the liturgy, I, I probably can't say that enough, outside of the liturgy, Popular forms being used to advance the work of the church, right? So those are some of the those are some of the concerns we would have about that. Um, the next section we should talk about is, would be the um, centrality of chant. Um, how many of you have heard that the Second Vatican Council got rid of Gregorian chant in Latin? If someone has said that to you at some point, yeah. What do you try to do? Turn the clock back? You know. Um, well, here's some information you might want to share um, with others. Um, what is the status of Latin and chant in the church today? Um, in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, the Fathers stated that the church acknowledges Gregorian chant as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. But other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony, are by no means excluded from liturgical celebrations. So long as they accord with the spirit of the liturgical action is laid down by art. That last little section, that's the door where they bring in everything else. Okay? Um, but they kind of ignore the first part. Um, so chant is the central, uh, is, is at the very heart of, uh, and central to the liturgy. Um, what about Latin? Um, in Musicum Sacrum, a document following the one we just heard from, um, reads, Pastors of souls should take care that besides the vernacular, the faithful may also be able to sing together in Latin. Those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. Those would be the responses um, that we have with the priest. Um, Gregorian chant as proper to the Roman liturgy should be given pride of place. If you really want to be on board with Vatican II, you're going to start singing chant in Latin. <laughs> that's, the, that's the news. The fact is, before the Second Vatican Council, people were, um, they had the four hymn sandwich. You know, they would put the hymns in. Hymns belong in the uh, liturgy of the hours, in the divine office. They don't, they don't belong in the Mass. Um, that doesn't mean you can't sing motets. There are a lot of other things you can sing. But the hymns were a Protestant importation into the Mass. Um, so if you, the, what, the whole, what the fathers were doing at this time is they were trying to, to reconnect the church with its roots and with its origins. Okay? Um, so uh, Vatican II equals chant in Latin. That doesn't mean you can't sing chant in English. There are lots of, and I'll talk about this later, there's some wonderful collections of chant that are coming out in English where we can sing the propers of the Mass. Um, there's actually a little a revolution of brew um, to, to, um, that uh, I hope you, I'll, we'll talk about at the end. Um, so a couple more points on this. What is the purpose of sacred music? Briefly, like all liturgical action, it seeks the glorification of God and the sanctification of the faithful. It's not about us. It's about God. And as we worship God and glorify God, we ourselves are elevated and purified and made holy. I'm sorry David Clayton, my friend, isn't here to hear me say this. Um, how many were here for David Clayton's talk? 
Anybody? The artist? Um, well, um, I think music, well, I'll let you hear this. Um, what is the relationship of sacred music to the other arts? The Second Vatican Council proclaimed that the musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than any other art. That's the status of sacred music in the church today. It's greater than any other art. Architecture is extremely important. The visual arts, extremely important. But we have to recover our music. All right. But what about the participation of the faithful? If we start singing chant and in Latin, doesn't that mean that we become bystanders? We've, we've lost our active participation. I thought that as well. Um, and um, until someone shared with me, they, they dug into the Latin of, of active participation and, and brought a few things to light. Um, it is true that there are times that we should stand and we should kneel and we should respond and we should sing. But throughout the entire Mass, our hearts, our souls should be lifted up to God and we should be participating internally. All right? um, and that, that, is the, that, that form of internal uh, participation is probably more important than the other forms of participation. At least as important and in some ways perhaps more important. Um, so it, just because the choir might be singing the creed and you're not singing the creed doesn't mean you're not participating. Follow along with the texts. Enter into it internally. That is the key to um, uh, full and active participation. Um, and then how do we evaluate sacred music? So you want to evaluate sacred music for this, this Sunday. How do you decide what, how do you know if it's good? Okay, so here are a couple, couple things you could use. Um, Sacred music should open us emotionally and psychologically to prayer. We should be praying at Mass, and if music interferes our ability to pray, then something's wrong. Um, it should be an organic development of the Church's sacred music tradition. All right? It should be grounded in that tradition and developed from it. Not a slavish imitation, um, but there sh- you should be able to, to find those points of commonality. It should be beautiful, and this is where having unity and harmony and claritas can be helpful. Um, it should fit the text and the disposition appropriate to the text. Um, the Kyrie should sound penitential. It should move us to penance. Okay? The music for the Kyrie should not sound like the music for the Gloria. Or the music for cats, while we're at it. Um, should, um, it, should be, we should, it should avoid connotations um, that are not proper to worship and prayer. Um, that's, I just, that was my reference there. Um, so why is chant so attractive to certain people in the church? in this sacred music tradition? Well, first, it's objectively beautiful. Not all chants are created equal. If you start really studying chant, you find some are very, very beautiful, and some sound like they were written by hacks. Okay? Um, but it's easy to lump it all together and say it's all beautiful. It's not all equally beautiful, but there are some just gorgeous Gregorian chants out there, and they, they, do, they do strike us as being objectively beautiful. One thing chant does is it removes us from the everyday. Um, and one of the things I think we've lost in the implementation of the Second Vatican Council is that it's become very mundane. Our liturgies feel very mundane. We don't feel like we're walking into the presence of God. Um, and chant just sounds so different from anything else. And you, you just have a sense that I'm in a different place, I'm doing something different, and this, this, this is holy. And, and chant can communicate that. Um, why do some people oppose the use of chant in the liturgy? Well, first of all, I think um, they often oppose it for good reasons. Um, the best of intentions and the best of motivations. Um, first of all, most of them don't know what the church teaches. They just don't know. They, they, haven't, read the, they haven't read the documents. They've relied on somebody else who's, who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who said it was okay to do whatever they want to do and what they think is right. Um, and they haven't taken the time to actually read the documents. Um, there's a kind of misguided populism also. They believe that chant and polyphony and sacred music is elitist. 
Well, we have a, that's, that's a cultural problem we have in the United States. Um, anything that's great and, and elevated, we, we want to sometimes pull it down to our level. Okay, we don't, I mean, Alexis de Tocqueville commented on that in Democracy in America. It's a wonderful text. And he traces the origins of this tendency within democracy itself. Um, and there's fear. Um, they're afraid that if we, if we start using the, the, the music the church asks us to use, we'll lose the people. Right? We have to have music that appeals to young people, right? And they don't like chant, right? So we can't do chant. Well, how do we know? How do we know? Um, there's also a fear, I think, on the part of the musicians and the composers that, um, that somehow their freedom and their creativity is going to be stifled. Um, well, all great artists know that you have to have discipline. You have to have limits. Um, and sometimes artists will even impose limits on themselves in order to give them um, a structure within which to work. Um, so I think those are some of the concerns. Um, so anyway, uh, I don't know. I, I guess we're going to do questions at the end. I'll tell I really want to ask, see if anybody has questions, but I'll, I'll wait. Um, um, all right. Um, now, going into this, um, the last section, how do we um, restore beauty to our lives and sacred music to the liturgy? How many of you have heard of Joseph Pieper? Have heard of Joseph Pieper? These are the basis of culture. Have we had a presentation, Deacon, on? Not on the book itself, but... I sense, I sense people here know, know this book. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's a very important text. Joseph Pieper was a, was a great Thomist philosopher. He's one of the um, sort of guiding lights um, at the College of St. Mary Magdalene, along with St. Thomas um, and Cardinal Newman. Um, we believe leisure is the basis of culture, and of course, um, it's tied in, uh, culture itself is, is tied in with the word cult and cultus um, in, the, uh, the, in worship. Um, if we're going to, if you're going to introduce beauty back into your life, you have to find a way to have leisure. Um, if you have five small children like I do, that's not going to happen very often. Um, but it does happen, and, and, it, and it's, we have to carve out a place for it in our lives. Um, I'm on a trip. I'm traveling alone. I brought a lot of CDs. I've been listening to a lot of music on this trip. It's, it's, been, good to, it's been good to catch up. Um, uh, I took my kids to a concert in Boston a couple weeks ago. Um, we do concerts usually in the summer and then during the winter, and we try to get them to concerts. But you know, during the months intervening, there's not a lot of time. But it has to be planned and intentional. And um, So I would encourage you to, to, to if you haven't read uh, Peeper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture, um, check it out, and um, also, I think that will motivate us um, to, uh, to find a place for leisure and beauty in our lives. But what about the liturgy? Um, well, the first uh, thing you can do is begin to connect with like-minded people. Um, on your handout, I, I put some resources here. Um, one thing you could do is attend a Church Music Association of America colloquium. They have a, a, an annual colloquium, this national colloquium, that's very good. Um, and they also have local workshops. And it doesn't matter if you've never sung in your life. If you've not, um, uh, you, don't, you don't know how to read chant, you don't know how to read music, go. And they have, diff- they have different levels you can go in at, and you'll be surrounded by beautiful music and chant for a few days, and it will, it will change your life. And um, it will also give you practical ideas on how to come back and, um, and serve your parish with music. Um, if when I open the browser on my computer every morning, the first site that comes up is a website called The Chant Cafe. I never have time to read anything on there. Um, but I at least look at the headlines, okay? And I will often forward things to friends and say, you should read this, and, and, <laughs> even, though, even though I haven't read them. Um, and, I, and I know if it's really good or really important, they'll, they'll ask me about it, and I'll, I can find out from them what it said. Um, but I, it, but that, that, that website's excellent because it, it not only tells you about resources, um, it also gives you... Um, information about uh, progress is being made in restoring the music and the liturgy. Um, sometimes there are um, uh, arguments will break out between a pro-chant website and other websites, um, and you'll kind of figure out, what are the arguments against chant? 
the people who argue against it and, and the restoration of the music and the liturgy, what, what are they saying? And you can, you can learn a lot um, from, these, from just looking at this website. Um, you also need to find out what the church teaches. Um, if you don't know already. And there's, there's a lot um, to learn. There's a lot to be said. But there are just a few basic things, and some of the key things are um, in this handout tonight. Um, Sacrosanctum Concilium and Musicum Sacrum are available online. You can just do the search for the website, um, the Vatican website, they're there. Um, at the adoramus.org site, there's a long list of other documents um, about sacred music. Um, the archives of sacred music are online. This is the journal of the Church Music Association of America. Um, and I, it's, it's wonderful reading um, to be able to go back and then look through there. Um, and then there's, a, you may have heard of this man, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, he wrote a book uh, called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And it's, this is, it's a relatively short book, and I think Ignatius Press has published it. Um, it's important when you begin looking at sacred music that you don't look at it just in isolation. You have to think about it in terms of the whole liturgy um, and you know, the, the broader frame. And this book does a great job of outlining that. It's a, it's a very straightforward text. Um, and it will lead you to other things that you can read um, that will be helpful. So connect with like-minded people, because if you try to do this on your own, you're going to give up. All right? um, second, what, find out what the church teaches. Um, and then learn what the common objections are. Um, this is something we learned from St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, it does no one good. No, no, it does no one any good to just construct a straw man, um, or to find the weakest arguments of those who disagree with you, and um, and find answers to those. What you want to do is you want to find the strongest arguments of those who disagree with you, the strongest articulations of those arguments, and then come up with responses, not in a combative spirit, in a spirit of humility. Um, but you've got to find out why. Why do people not want want to do what the church says about sacred music? What are their reasons? Um, and then another one would be um, finding out how other people are bringing, um, about, bringing about change in their parishes. How are they bringing sacred music back to their parishes? And what pitfalls must be avoided? Um, I learned pretty early on, um, fortunately not through personal experience, but, um, but just from reading and, and that there are a number of, of things you can do um, and pitfalls to be avoided. The pitfalls are typically associated with arrogance. Um, people go to a conference, they read one article, and then they start knocking on the parish door. Hi, I'm here, I'm here to fix your liturgy. Um, you're not going to get very far. Um, and it's, it's, it, and the, 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 the pride is, is what's going to bring it all down. Um, if you look down below a little bit further, there's um, what... Um, uh, actually, no, it's right under, it's under this one. How to Start Your Own Garage Scola. It's a great little article. Um, and one of the things, it's not, only, it's not only is it great for how it, the practical tips it gives you on how to organize your friends and start singing chant, but it makes recommendations for things like, for example, um, maybe, so you want, some, you want to learn some chant. The long-range goal is to help make the liturgy more beautiful. Well, maybe your friends should get together and learn some chant and then go volunteer at the nursing home. Okay. Father, is there, can, can we assist? Maybe we, could, maybe we could go once a week to the nursing home and sing chant for our parishioners that are there or the ones that are shut in. Um, and then once you have enough, enough repertoire, maybe you could sing at one of the morning masses, if that's okay. You know, again, a servant attitude. Um, we're here to serve. We're not here to fix things. Um, that, that makes all the difference in the world. Um, and then people get excited about what you're doing, and they don't feel as threatened. Um, one way to make it easier also, and I learned this at one of those uh, colloquium, colloquia, is that um, some parishes, um, when they first start doing chant, they'll put together um, little uh, worship papers that will have um, the text for the Mass, and it'll have, actually have the notes, it'll have the Latin and the English, so people can follow along, so they'll know exactly what they're singing. All right? There are a lot of ways to make it easier and make it, make it go more smoothly. Um, 
And then what other resources are available? If you go to the Chant Cafe website, you look down the sidebar, there's a section that says, uh, it's called um, uh, A Church Musician Must Own, and it has a number of texts um, there that you can, you can pick up. Um, you know, you could get these books and start looking through them on your own, and that, that would be a place to start. But I think probably the best place to go would be one of these uh, Church Music Association of America meetings. Um, and then the last one I have, on, well, there's, there are two more. Mus- musical resources at Corpus Christi Watershed. Um, this is another great resource for sacred music, and a lot of this music is free. You can download it. Um, and then Jubilate Deo. This is... Um, uh, this, is, this, this text always, this always kind of fills me with melancholy when I see this because I think about what could have been. I'll just read you um, a, a little bit from the introduction to this. This is a collection of chants that was put together by, anyone want to guess a pope? How about um, Paul VI? Put together a, collections of, a collection of chant, um, and then the, the Congregation um, for Divine Worship sent it out to all the bishops. And this collection was the minimum this is after the Second Vatican Council. This is the minimum chant that all Catholics should know. It's available online for free. Um, I'll read you what it says. It says, Our congregation has prepared a booklet entitled Jubilate Deo, which contains a minimum selection of sacred chants. This was done in response to a desire which the Holy Father had frequently expressed, that all the faithful should know at least some Latin Gregorian chants, such as, for example, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei. It gives me great pleasure to send you a copy of it as a personal gift from His Holiness, Pope Paul VI. May I take this opportunity of recommending to your pastoral solicitude this new initiative, whose purpose is to facilitate the observance of the recommendation of the Second Vatican Council, that, quote, steps must be taken to ensure that the faithful are able to chant together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertains to them. And that's available online, both in chant notation and regular notation. You can take it down. Um, right after I entered the church about eight years ago, um, I don't know how many of you have ever had kids who have trouble going to sleep at night. You end up sitting, and there, some people lie down on the floor, some people sit on the bed. I don't know what they do. Um, I would sing to them. And so what I did is I, I started singing chant to them at night. Um, I would learn one chant, and um, I would sing a chant until I learned that one, and then I would add another one. And slowly and sure, but surely they began to learn the chants. And I did too. I, they had to suffer a bit uh, in, the, in the interim, but uh, um, it, it can be done. Um, so, anyway, so um, I guess in, in summary, I, I, you know, we've talked about the nature of beauty. Uh, we've talked about how it's, um, it is both an objective and a, it has a, an objective and a subjective dimension. Um, objectively, it, ha- it requires unity, harmony, and clarit- claritas. Um, and then we've talked about some of the things that can facilitate or inhibit our experience of beauty on the subjective side. Um, and then there's the, the question of sacred music, this difference between sacred music and religious music. Sacred music is a, a tradition you enter into, um, and that you don't just do whatever you want. It's a kind of apprenticeship. Um, and, um, and then we looked at some of the things the church has said about, about sacred music in Latin. Um, and, um, and then I think there's a cause for hope. With the new media, the uh, things that are available online, these conferences, um, people are beginning to uh, rediscover the great tradition, that great inestimable treasure that the um, church speaks of, of chant and, um, and uh, sacred polyphony. So I hope that this has been helpful and useful, and um, thank you for your attention. mentioned that cliche would be something that would not be beautiful. How do you know the difference between something that's cliched and something that has roots to traditions or what's come before? That's an excellent question, and it's not an easy one to answer. Um, I think this is where the, 
the historical situation in which something is experienced um, really comes into play. Um, and I think appeals to authority. I mean, uh, Thomas says that's the weakest form of you know, uh, appeal um, if, uh, in terms of coming to, a, coming to know the truth. Um, but in this case, I think I tend to trust the people who, are, who have their hands in the musical material or the artistic material. If people who have really apprenticed themselves to the visual tradition or the musical tradition see something or hear something and they think, that's worn out, we need to put it on the shelf for 20 years, um, I tend to think they probably know better. Um, but it's hard to know. I mean, Hollywood films are a good example. I mean, Hollywood films are very formulaic, typically, and they're filled with lots of cliches. But they make an enormous amount of money because there are a lot of people out there that aren't sensitive to the fact that they're cliches, or they don't care. They just want a good, a good experience, you know, a fun time. Um, I think in this case, you have to really respect the people who are making the art. Um, and um, you know, even as a layperson who's, a layperson who's not a maker of art, um, I think we can, we can become informed and um, through, through you know, looking at art and listening to music, and we can develop a sense of that ourselves. Um, and um, there's no cut, cut and dried thing. And I think it also has to do with age. I mean, things that are, cliche, are cliched to me are not cliched to my children. Um, and so it really, it's, it's, um, it can be challenging. So I think I just broke the rule. I apologize. <laughs> No, you're right, you're right. I do apologize for those that are sitting in the front of the room. We are having some speaker problems here. In the back, it's pretty good, right? Yeah, but unfortunately in the front, it's bad. You would expect it to be the opposite. But anyways, I apologize. Keith is doing the best he can to push the edges of the uh, system here. We have a, a, a question coming in online from Mary Kay who asks, Do I understand you to say that the churches that our churches should eliminate the entrance, offertory, communion, and recessional hymns, which have been the staple of our church music all our lives, and only sing chant? Well, a lot of those, um, the terms that uh, were in the, que- in the question um, are, um, are more contemporary terms for older chants. So um, the entrance hymn um, is a more contemporary um, explanation or designation for the introit. Um, and if you, I, I would say that the bottom line is you have to follow the general instruction of the Roman Missal. That's, that's the explanation of the rubrics of the Mass. Um, the problem is, is there are um, when you're reading, when you're reading the, what they call the germ, um, it will often say this is the preferred way of doing things, um, but you could always do this with approval. Okay? Um, and we kind of ignore that, that hierarchy, that priority, and we take that the, the last resort, the last option, and that has become the norm um, in some ways because it's the easiest, um, and it's, it's, the, it's one we're very comfortable with. So. Um, I think if you really want to get down into the, into the nuts and bolts of this, you have to go read the germ, and you have to read the documents that we, we talked about tonight. And I think then you'll, you'll kind of discover what this, the ethos, if you will, of the liturgical reform. What were they aiming at? Um, and, you know, it clearly says that the chant and, and, and sacred polyphony should have pride of place. So what does that mean? Is that, that's not a cut and dry all or nothing. But I think if you begin operating from that point, um, then that changes how you begin to see hymns and other, other kinds of music. We'll be linking those, uh, those documents on our web page for this talk also for those that would like to, to take a look at those. Uh, thank you for the excellent presentation. Um, I've heard it said that um, beautiful music enhances appreciation for the good and the true, and certainly the converse is true that you know terrible music um, 
does the opposite. How is it that the Nazis were able to be cultured and connoisseurs of the best music by night and carry out such horrible atrocities by day? That's an excellent question. I think that that, that gives um, that should cause us to pause as we start throwing around the good and the true and the beautiful. Um, I think the true. I mean, if you. Um, I, mean, I studied music in college, and um, I met a lot of really good people in my department, um, but they weren't very happy people generally. Um, and the, the kind of joy that you would expect them to have from interacting with this beautiful music all day, every day, um, it just wasn't, that wasn't the case. So I think that kind of facile, okay, if we put, if, we have, if, we're, if we're interacting with the beautiful, then suddenly we're going to have, be connected with the true and the good, and we're, it's all going to come together and everything's going to be great. It's just, it's just not the reality. Um, I think there's a place here for grace, and these things have to be oriented within a larger, a larger um, horizon, I think, of true. I mean, in Fides Eratio, John Paul II talks about this, the two wings that we, with which we ascend uh, to behold the truth. It's faith and reason. Um, and um, I think we have to, these things can't stand alone. And I think one of the problems of that culture was they tended to make a religion out of art. Um, and I think once music and art became disconnected from worship, and it kind of started going its own way, I think it lost its way. Um, and um, we can make an idol out of anything. Um, one of the most uh, chilling pictures I've ever seen is a, uh, is a von Karajan conducting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It's a video, and, and Hitler is sitting in the audience listening. Um, so. Thank you for your talk. I thought it was excellent. Uh, oftentimes when uh, churches will switch to a more chant focus, uh, the response of the faithful is, oh, that was so beautiful, instead of, that was really a need to prayer. So practically speaking, uh, how do you kind of change that focus? So instead of focusing on the music itself, it really uh, becomes an instrument to prayer. Well, Lewis talked about this um, in reference to the Book of Common Prayer. He always opposed revising the Book of Common Prayer because he said when you do that, you have to, suddenly you're paying attention to the words. You're not, you're not praying through the texts to God. And um, I think that's, that's true with the music. I think, I think in, a, in a sense, at first, yes, you'll, you'll think, oh, this is beautiful, this is nice. But eventually you have to get to the point where you almost just worship through it and it's no longer this new thing. And I think... Some people, it's, it's, I've always been, I found curious this introduction, the introduction of chant during Lent. You know, is that a way of suffering? I, I, don't, I, don't, really, I don't really understand. Um, you know, is, that, is this penitential to have to sing chant? Um, so, but I think it, once you get used to it, I mean, and some, I think sometimes, you know, a, a choir might introduce, start doing the communion antiphon or, or an offertory antiphon. Um, and for the first couple of Sundays, every, everybody's like, wow, what's that? Um, but after a couple of months, that's just, that's, that's there. And then you really can sort of pray through and beyond it. I don't know if there's that. If I could just be allowed a, a question. Um, sure. How would you deal with the problem of Latin and people not understanding Latin anymore generally within the church? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when we talk about reintroducing the Latin, um, we're really talking about um, just a little bit of Latin. So. Um, I think it would be very easy to put together something. That those, those response cards that we got with the new translation that are in the back of a lot of people's pews, um, it would be very, very simple to put that together and have the Latin and the English. And the fact is, because since the Second Vatican Council we've been singing mostly in English, we know what these words are. I mean, you know what the Sanctus is. You don't need a translation. Okay, we could put one there just in case you forget, but you've been singing this in English now for a very long time. Um, you know what the cure means. So I, I think you could put those laminated cards that are in the back of the pews, you could do that. Um, I mean, the credo is a little long, it might take a little more time. But, um, and then the responses, again, you could put them in the back of the pew, and um, it, would be, it would be pretty easy to, get to, to do that. So. 
Well, I, I was a child and I suffered through the trauma of Vatican II, so I'll just ask the question that's probably on everybody's mind, which is how did the intent of the Council with regard to sacred music go so far awry? There's no simple answer, I'm afraid. Um, I, there are clues, though, and I've, I've gotten clues from reading this, this chant. Can I tell you, every now and then something will come up, and um, I, think it, it, I think it comes down to sort of uh, there are a lot of factors. So I've, you know, I've heard I've heard accounts where some parish musicians, I mean, there were some parish musicians who were just they were going to experiment. It's, it's now we're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to again with good intentions we're going to do this because it's going to it's going to work. We're going you know, to be faithful, but we're going to do it this way. And then there were people who were more traditionally minded, I think, who maybe were less flexible. So maybe they weren't willing to go as far as, as maybe they should have. But there were people trying to go too far and it ended up being a tug of war. And um, it's it's. And then there weren't a lot of resources. That's what's so wonderful about the, the present time, um, is there are so many resources. And um, a lot of people who are producing them, are, are, they're not putting copyrights on them. So you can download them, um, you can print them, um, reproduce them. Um, in some ways, I, you know, I've heard it said that in some ways we had to go through the last, you know, the last few decades to really rediscover what our patrimony is. Um, because frankly, before the Vatican Council, in most parishes, there, it wasn't this golden age of chant and polyphony. I mean, it, it was in decline. Um, there had been a chant revival at the beginning of the 20th century, um, but that had never really gotten off the ground as well as it would have, as it was hoped. Um, so, in some sense, that golden age of chant is in the future. Um, and uh, we listen to those recordings at the beginning of the 20th century; they're not very pretty. Um, and um, so, I think it's it's still ahead of us. Um, and the Holy Father has spoken about this. Um, uh, I think the two, the, um, well, the biggest thing I think that is often identified as, as, as messing things up was, was the turning the, the priest to face the people. That just changed the ethos in ways that people never imagined. Um, and um, so that, that, you know, things like that, I think that this sort of set people off kilter. Um, so there's no, if, I'm hoping a book will be written at some point explaining this to me, but I, I, I haven't heard, I haven't heard the, the, an answer to the why question. So... Thank you very much, Dr. Hearn. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.